This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. I'm Roz Taylor and it's Alex Andreu joining me this week. He has lost his voice a bit. Hello, Alex. <laughs> Hello, Roz. Yes, it's going to be Start Your Week Extreme Jazz Edition this week. <laughs> Start your slightly weak voice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to Eurovision and the travesty of Finland missing out on the trophy later. <laughs> it's been a troubled weekend for the Conservatives. After the orgy of coronation patriotism, they seem to have realised that they are still very unpopular. While my back was turned, a couple of entirely new Tory factions seem to have sprung up and have been holding their conferences. At the weekend, we had the Conservative Democratic Organisation. Alex, is this anything more than a Boris revival movement? No, um, is the short answer. It's it's basically a bring back Boris fest, bankrolled by his mate uh, Crudus, with people like Nadine Dorries and... Pretty Patel and Lord Moylan doing doing the running. I find it inc- incredibly amusing that uh, uh, Boris Johnson was invited to attend and declined <laughs> because I suspect he looked at the quality of the people who will be there and speaking there and, and thought, well, that's one way to completely make sure my career never recovers is to associate um, myself with that crank fest. I'm afraid Johnson wasn't there, which is not unusual for an unpaid event. Um, but all his pom-pom shakers did make an appearance. Yes, Priti Patel gave a speech, but I don't think we need to pay much attention to it, do we? No. I mean, all of it was basically about how none of what's going on is um, uh, Boris Johnson's fault and how all of it is Rishi Sunak's fault. And, you know, uh, Nadine Dorries opened her programme on, her TV programme on Friday uh, with a sort of monologue in which she claimed that apparently at the time Johnson was deposed, the Conservatives were only four points behind in the polls, which is an absolute fiction. I had to go back and look at the aggregated polls on the political website for that date. And the Conservatives were on average, on average, 10 points behind in the polls. Give it a couple of months and there'll have been 40 points ahead in the polls. <laughs> but tell us about the National Conservatives movement, which is different. You must not confuse them. Does it have a philosophy? Well, it has several philosophies, and 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 not all of them are palatable. I'm afraid it it is a platform known for giving voice to really quite extreme conspiracists and anti-Semites, and I, I mean the notion that the UK's Home Secretary is a is is sharing a platform with these people, and that Number Ten has defended her appearing in this really tea party for Europe conference is just extraordinary. Like I said, you know, the people who have appeared 
on that platform historically are unsavory to say the least. So I I don't know what's going on. (laughs) There seems to be quite a lot of freelancing, it seems to me. And really, this is the fallout from that dreadful local election performance. It had sort of temporarily been suspended by the coronation. Um, But it is now bubbling up, that unhappiness and that fear. Um, uh, Raphael Baer wrote an extraordinary piece after that, Uh, local election performance in which he said that the one thing conservatives need right now to have even the smallest chance of the narrowest path to an election victory next year is party discipline. And he wrote that, unfortunately, discipline is soluble in fear, which I think is a lovely turn of phrase. And this is what we're seeing now, basically. We're seeing a lot of people very worried about their local results, looking at their majorities and seeing them vanish. And several national voting intention polls over the weekend showing the gap reopening, which might be the strong horse, lame horse theory, right? That when people see someone performing very badly in a race and see someone else performing well in a race, they tend to switch their support to the strong horse. So this could create actually momentum for Starmer to open up the gap again uh, to Sunak in the sort of high teens area because it had been in the low to mid mid teens on average recently so the natcon speakers include michael gove uh, jacob rees mogg and also david frost who i understand is hoping to leave the lords and go and be an mp uh, he hasn't found a constituency yet though so you know, good good luck with that hopefully yeah. <laughs> but the biggest speaker is is as you say the home secretary suella braverman who is talking today about migration and this the background to this is talk of the approaching net migration figures which are not out until 25th of may but it is rumored that they are around 3 quarters of a million which is significantly higher than they have been before Now, it could be that this is all expectations management and the actual figure might be a bit lower. But how is this playing into Tory politics, first of all, and then later we'll get on to what might be the concrete results of a very high figure? Look, the the, uh, migration figures, uh, let's take the same perspective, first of all, okay? Migration figures are high because there was quite a lot of pent-up demand over the pandemic when migration figures for 2020 and 2021 were artificially low. So they've now shot up, basically. This is what's happening. What's happening is that, you know, people who wanted to work abroad for a year or people who wanted to study in the UK, you know, there's a pent-up demand for that. Add to that the situation in Ukraine, which involved, you know, tens of thousands of people coming over, and the situation in Hong Kong, Uh, where the government decided to offer sort of grandfather rights, visas to Hong Kongers who wanted to leave um, that region. And it all, uh, you know, uh, balloons quite significantly. So, I mean, the sane view is that this is completely normal. The insane review, and, and we have to look at that because 
the, the Conservative Party has made a rod for its own back. And so we have to judge it by the standards it has set for itself, beginning with that idiotic Cameron pledge 13 years ago to bring immigration down to the tens of thousands that everyone, everyone I speak to knew was a nonsense, and yet he promised it. And, and it's been really the rod that they've made for their own back since then in various permutations. So, you know, Grant Chaps uh, got into dreadful trouble over those figures in both Sophie Ridge on Sunday on Sky News and the Kunzberg show on the BBC because they're trying to defend high migration at a time when they're staring, you know, actively staring anti-migrant sentiment. And, and this was not unpredictable. This was not something that nobody saw coming. Everybody saw this coming. You know, it was entirely predictable that by riding this particular tiger, it was going to maul them at some point because they're not going to manage to stop the boats. And because if they did reduce net migration to the tens of thousands, it would mean the shutdown of the economy. It would mean universities up and down the country basically closing down because they don't have that stream of overseas students' revenues. So, you know, it's insane, but it is the, of their own making. They have now created a situation where their base is immensely hostile to migration and face a situation where they're releasing very high migration figures. So Madeleine Sumption of the Migration Observatory has pointed out over the weekend that a lot of the work visas which are being issued are for care workers. But Braverman's emphasis today is on training up fruit pickers and lorry drivers. And her whole argument is that Britain needs to become basically self-sufficient in crap jobs or, you know, if not crap jobs, should we say jobs that are ill-paid and less pleasant to do? Yes, how quickly we travelled from the promise of a high-wage, high-skill economy, which was the whole point of Brexit, we were told, before the referendum, to now come on off you go and pick some apples. Yeah, exactly. Do you think this is going to feed through to Tory policy this week? I mean, is, is Sunak going to announce new crackdowns on visas, for example? Who knows? Like I said, with this amount of people basically freelancing on policy issues, it's very, very difficult to predict what's what's going to happen. The, the atmosphere in the Tory party is absolutely febrile at the moment. Shaps did a broadcast round on Sunday where he was bullish to say the least. He was basically saying there's nothing to see here. We're sticking with a plan, which considering the disastrous result they just had, to not even acknowledge that a change of direction, some sort of change of direction is required, is crazy. And yet there is no plan to get rid of Sunak. So even Jacob Rees-Mogg, incandescent with rage over his retained EU law bill being basically watered down to unrecognizability, he says he supports Sunak fully because at the same time as being incredibly unhappy with Sunak, the Conservatives know that if they go into some other leadership election, whomever they elect, 
the effect of looking to the public like a party that just doesn't know what it's doing will be disastrous. And so what are they doing? It seems to me, at least, they have already acknowledged and accepted that they will lose the next election and lose the next election badly. And so you have people like Johnson and Braverman, people like that, basically on maneuvers to be the next conservative leader after the election defeat. That's what's going on here. And Liz Truss has also been freelancing. She is going to be talking about China (laughs) this week. Yes, she's popping up at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit, where she's apparently going to expand on her idea of an economic NATO, which is a sort of freedom-loving nations getting together to do free trade, with which, good luck again, seeing as the biggest constituent part of that is the United States, which is protectionist and has been protectionist for decades now and is absolutely not interested in opening up its market. It's as daft an idea as any Liz Truss has had, and that's saying something. There are several other hairs running as well. You know, the strike situation is still not resolved. The nurses' union is demanding fresh talks. A parade of Tories seem to be completely struggling with the idea of actual democracy, you know. They just don't get how a membership of an organisation can vote to reject something and then, you know, the leader changes policy and says, sorry, my members won't accept that, which makes perfect sense when you remember they are led by someone who was roundly rejected by their own membership. Teachers are balloting. Aslef is starting a sort of no overtime period for train drivers, and we know that the train system depends on drivers doing a lot of overtime. And you have a planning crisis with nimbies on manoeuvres in the back benches, go threatening local councils with stripping planning powers off them. The whole situation is incredibly febrile. And we keep finding out about more stories that reveal this dysfunction. I don't know if you saw in the Times, the Matt Dathan story yesterday, that Johnson had included a knighthood for... Michael Gove in his first resignations honours list and then spiked it because he saw Gove as responsible for Kemi Badenoch pulling out of the race and endorsing Rishi Sunak. You know, so this is the environment within which these people are trying to govern the country. And the fact of the matter is that not even 10% of their attention is focused on governing the country. Almost all of their energy is going on their infighting and in politics. Yes, and there have also been dubious reports about what has been going on in the North East with Ben Houchen, who was very much a poster child for local uh, conservatism. But it turns out that some of the deals he has done acquiring land are distinctly fishy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Enough about the Tories. What's the Labour Party been up to? There is talk of them giving EU citizens the vote, which has had the most savage backlash in the Daily Mail today. Yes, I mean, to be expected. But there is there is a pattern forming there as well, because I think that's going to be the attack route for the Conservatives, this idea of constitutional reform, effectively, about how, you know, Labour are going to, you know, throw the pieces up in the air by changing things that are working perfectly well. But the point is, they're not working perfectly well. So you have scaremongering about a coalition was the theme throughout the week. Then on uh, a Friday, late last week, you had a a sort of um, a big leak and then a series of pieces warning that Labour is going to bring in proportional representation if they're forced into a coalition because that will be the smaller party's demand spearheaded by an extraordinary Andrew Neil piece in the Daily Mail, or Mail Plus, rather, in which he he said in explicit terms that this will mean Conservatives never get into power again because they will never command a majority in this country. And I, I'm just reading this thing and I'm thinking, what are you saying? Are you saying it is better for you know, a party that actually does not command a majority in this country for its policies, but has a very good ability to fragment its opposition, that it's better for democracy for that party to be in charge all the time, pretty much, instead of voters actually getting the combination of parties that they wanted you know, and scaremongering that this will bring in some sort of communist dystopia. I mean, it's an extraordinary piece describing the country falling apart and still conservatives never getting above 50%. And you read this and you think, sorry, Andrew, (laughs) but let me point out a really basic flaw in your thesis. If things get as bad as you say, surely the Conservatives would walk the next election with 70% of the vote. No, they still couldn't get that. So the situation would both get so bad that this country would fall to bits and the Conservatives would never get in power. And you get that replicated all the time. And the latest instalment of that is a leak of something that's being considered by the Labour Party, which is to expand the franchise which is a terrific thing, right? Because there is no earthly reason why someone on a one-year work visa from Australia should have the right to vote in this country, or someone from Cyprus should have the right to vote in this country on uh, sort of leftover Commonwealth rights, or someone who just comes over from Ireland two weeks ago should have a right to vote in this country. But I who have been here 33 years and have, you know, paid tax and lived here and, you know, and this is my home and I intend to go nowhere, I have no right to vote in a general election. So good on Labour and good on Labour that they went out and defended the possibility of this policy as well, because it's a bloody good policy and they should implement it. Let's talk about one of the most consequential 
elections this year, the presidentials in Turkey, which were yesterday. But the result, to everyone's frustration, was not conclusive, was it? The opposition doesn't seem to have done as well as they hoped. But can we trust these results anyway? So it's a tricky one, right? Um, So going into the election, the two rivals, President Erdogan, who has been really the ruler of Turkey, even though there's been some flip-flopping that, like there was with Putin, like he was prime minister for a while and then they changed the constitution and became president again. But anyway, ignore that. He's been in charge of Turkey for 20 years. And the challenger, which is a, a sort of a fairly, fairly progressive, um, secularist, very, very important because Turkey has been becoming more and more a religious um, state under Erdogan. So the, the challenger is secularist, a, a man called Kilic Daroglu, who managed to unite basically all the opposition parties behind him. There is a third candidate in the first round, a sort of ultra-nationalist called Sinan Ogan. Nobody knows where that man's votes will go to in the second round, because in Turkey, unless you get over the 50% threshold, there is a second round. There is a runoff, much like it is in France, right? And so everyone will look to see if Sinan Ogan endorses one of the two candidates. There are real concerns that there's been a pattern of quite concerted action, challenging ballot boxes in areas and in authorities where Kilic Daroglu is more popular than Erdogan. Hundreds and hundreds of ballot boxes have been set aside because of such challenges. And going into this election, Kilic Daroglu was actually hovering around the 50% mark and Erdogan was six or seven points behind. And considering how poorly Erdogan did during the recent earthquakes, there was a, a, an, an understanding that Kilic Daroglu w- would come ahead and may, may even win on the first round. But there was also an unspoken fear in the mind of every Turkish friend I've spoken to, and I've been chatting with them a lot recently via various methods of communication, that Erdogan was going to try and steal this election because he has a history of authoritarian behaviors, of, you know, uh, imprisoning rivals, of, you know, firing judges and replacing them with uh, friendlier ones, of organizing red flag coups when he's in trouble. You know, he's a dangerous character. And so everyone thought the more the polls are going against him, the more likely he is to try and do something to steal this election. So, I mean, I'm afraid we don't know what has happened. The final result seems to be a reversal of what every poll was saying. So it has Erdogan on about 49% and his challenger on about 45%. So that 5% of the third candidate, Ogan, will be absolutely key to what happens. So uh, anyone's guess what's going to happen in the runoff, which is in in two weeks' time, on, on Sunday the 28th of May, 
The G7 leaders are off to Hiroshima on Friday for a summit. Are we expecting very much from that? Before that, actually, on Tuesday, uh, Sunak is meeting with the Council of Europe on Tuesday in Iceland. Um, that will be quite an interesting meeting, considering the uh, piece of legislation, the illegal migration bill, bill that they're trying to put through Parliament at the moment. Because one of the problems with that bit of legislation is that even the government is refusing to sign it off as not being in conflict with international law in terms of the European Convention of Human Rights, which is a requirement, which is an instrument of the Council of Europe. And abiding by it is a requirement for membership of the Council of Europe. So on Tuesday, when he heads off to Iceland, he might meet leaders that have words to say about all that. And that he's going to Tokyo, as you say, for the G7. Energy, as we understand, will be the big topic. And what is expected is that the G7 will coordinate its action with the European Union to keep gas pipelines basically shut off from Russia. And I find that really fascinating, Roz, how this issue has switched from being a Russian threat to being a pressure point by the West. If you cast your mind a year and a bit back, one of the biggest threats that Russia was issuing to the world is that we're going to shut off your pipelines. And now Russia is begging for the pipelines to be reopened and the West is coordinating its action to keep them shut. And I think that is testament actually to how united and how effective and how coordinated resistance has been to this outrageous war. President Zelensky of Ukraine is in the UK today. Last minute announcement. Yes, uh, just before we recorded, it was announced that as part of his sort of European tour, he was meeting with Chancellor Schultz over the weekend. He will come to the UK to have a chat with Sunak. We had an announcement from Sunak that the UK will now provide long-range missiles to Ukraine, which is quite a big development. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that Tories are in trouble in the polls again. But it will be nice to see Zelensky in this context again and and to sort of uh, pay homage again to his courage and his leadership, which has been extraordinary. Finally, I'm assuming that you watched Eurovision, Alex. Yes, I did. Yes. Did Sweden deserve to win? Because when I saw Finland's cha-cha-cha, I really thought they had it wrapped up. Oh, God, them. no, I didn't like Finland's thing at all. I just thought it was ghastly noise. I, I didn't particularly like the Swedish entry either. I have to say there, there were things in there that I thought would do well that really didn't do well. But that's always the case with Eurovision, right? It'll, Eurovision loves to create a little bit of history. And I think for Laureen to become the first woman to win Eurovision twice was just too tempting, you know, a ceiling to smash for people watching at home. That, that's what it feels like to me, that both juries and voters at home just wanted that little bit of history to happen. But um, my impression of um, this, the song contest overall, um, having settled for a couple of days, I enjoyed it immensely on the night. 
But looking back a couple of days later, I'd, I'm not sure that Britain was as gracious as it could have been in the way it acknowledged that this was really Ukraine's hosting, that it, it was Ukraine hosting, but it couldn't happen in the Ukraine. I thought the Ukrainian host was sidelined by, you know, the big personalities of Hannah and Graham. There, there were tiny little bits of nods to the Ukrainian music. The opening bit was lovely. But overall, this felt very much like Britain saying, we're never going to win this thing again. This is our, our one chance to host it. So let's make it a British Eurovision. I thought it could have been a little more blended in terms of we are hosting on behalf of the Ukraine. And so my, my uh, sort of retrospective uh, reaction to it is less enthusiastic than it was on the night. Yes, there was a lot of pushing of um, pretty British locations as yeah. well as the usual Ukrainian ones, which felt a bit intrusive. I thought that uh, France had a bad deal. I thought Evidemont was actually um, very yeah, good. Yeah, I, I really liked that. That was very Milan Farmer um, circa 1989, I thought. It was a, a really nice tune. But like I said, there were a few things that I thought would do better than they than they did, and a few things that, frankly, should never have been in there. I mean, I don't know what the semi-final voting public was thinking, putting through that satanic ritual death metal number in there. I mean, who's going to vote for that in the final? It was ghastly. But then, you know, the UK's entry was, was also left a lot to be desired. I mean, the UK's entry, I was so disappointed about because I thought it was going to do really well because it's a really catchy uh, dance tune. But then, unfortunately, I thought the performance of the day was really, really flat. So um, I think that's what let it down. I mean, Eurovision is a live show. And if the track is overproduced and then the singer gets on stage and can't really deliver what people expect, they're going to be punished. And I think that's what happened. And that's all for Start Your Week. Thanks so much, Alex. <laughs> I hope your voice gets better. Thank you, Rose. Join us tomorrow when Seth Tevros talks to Samuel Earle about why Britain became a Tory nation. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can back us by searching for Patreon Bunker Podcast, and that's as little as £3 a month. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Alex Andreu. The producers were Kasia Tomashevich, Liam Tate, and me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 